All right, since this is the first night, I'm going to give you just a very brief introduction. And first of all, I do want to thank uh, Pastor Alter and the church for inviting me. And I thank you church members for coming out tonight and especially some visitors that I've met. Uh, the hospitality and generosity that's been extended to me already since I've been here is much more than I deserve. Now, I have three lectures for you. Tonight, it's going to be the prehistory of the King James Bible. Tomorrow night, the Bishop's Bible and its relationship to the King James Bible. And then lecture three, the 1611 King James Bible and its editions. I hope you can make all three lectures. Lecture two will build on lecture one, and then lecture three will build on lecture one and two. Now, many things have been written down through the years about how the King James Bible has tremendously influenced English language and English literature. I'm not going to talk about that. There are books on that. Many things were written in the 20th century about why the King James Bible is superior to modern versions. And I believe that it is, but that's not what I'm going to talk about. There's all kinds of books on that. Much was written about the history of the King James Bible leading up to the 400th anniversary in 2011. There were a lot of new books that came out. But if you look at all the histories of the English Bible that have been written over the years, they naturally devote uh, much of their space to the history of the King James Bible. My focus, I believe, is unique. And that's because I've spent the last 25 years researching and writing on the history and text of the King James Bible based not on what people say in their books, but on my study of all the primary source material and then, of course, the secondary source material as well. So my focus is on the history of the King James Bible that you won't find in the typical Bible history book. And my focus is also different because it's from a Bible-believing perspective, not a critical perspective. Amen. Now, I've also written three books on the King James Bible, and they're out there on the book table. And I brought some of my other books as well. There are descriptions of the books on the back cover. And the books are also discounted, cheaper than you can buy them from my own website. Now, the lectures are based on primary sources, what they are and then what they tell us. And I invite you to stay after the lecture. That's just the first part of it tonight. Because I'll have on display in the other room over there facsimile editions and copies of old Bibles and manuscripts that relate to the history of the King James Bible. And that display will change each night depending on what I talk about. So I have three goals. Number one, I want to give you an understanding of the true history of the King James Bible. Number two, I want to correct misconceptions and misinformation about the history of the King James Bible. Some of it even from Bible believers. And then three, I want to help you to better appreciate the Bible you hold in your hands. All right, so let's get started. I'm excited. Now, lecture one is going to cover King James and the throne of England, the Church of England, the Hampton Court Conference, the Hebrew Bible, Erasmus of Rotterdam, the editions of the Greek New Testament, William Tyndale, the Tyndale New Testament, 
Miles Coverdale, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthew Bible, the Great Bible, the Whittingham New Testament, and the Geneva Bible. Notice, first of all, the wording on the title page of the first edition of the King James Bible. Newly translated out of the original tongues and with the former translations diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special commandment. So here's the title page of the first edition of the King James Bible. The title's the Holy Bible, not the King James Version or the King James Bible. And I'll talk more about the title in a few minutes. I'll also talk about the images on the title page in Lecture 3. Now, notice the title includes the name of the printer, that's Robert Barker, and the date, 1611. But note especially three things. The original tongues, that be Greek and Hebrew. The former translations, that's the English translations before the King James Version. And then also His Majesty, and of course that's King James. The King James Bible was equally a translation and a revision. You can't understand the history of the King James Bible without knowing something about the history of the Hebrew and Greek texts that underlie it, and especially the history of the early English Bibles that preceded it upon which it was based. But first, let's look at King James. He lived 1566 to 1625. He was crowned King James I of England in 1603. He was educated. He wrote several books. He was Protestant, and he was theologically minded. He was a firm believer in the divine right of kings and the Episcopal government of the Church of England. He had seven children, but only two lived to adulthood. His son Charles, who succeeded him, was executed in 1640. However, his daughter Elizabeth married a German prince and had 13 children. Her grandson, George I, became King of England in 1714, thus beginning the German Hanover control of the throne of England. The great-grandson of George I was George III, the English king during the American Revolution. But King James was also James VI of Scotland since 1567. He was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. He was from the Stuart dynasty. So how did he become the king of England? Here's the family tree of King James. The Tudor dynasty ruled England beginning with Henry VII. He was succeeded by the infamous Henry VIII. Henry uh, was succeeded by Edward VI, who died in 1553. Mary I, also called Bloody Mary, she died in 1558. And then Elizabeth I, she died in 1603. Now, all three of Henry's children died childless. Henry's sister, Margaret, had married James IV of Scotland. Her granddaughter, 
was Mary, Queen of Scots, the mother of King James. But then by her second husband, her grandson, was Henry, the father of King James. So King James was the great-grandson of Margaret Tudor, the sister of Henry VIII. His parents were half-cousins, sharing one grandmother. All right, here are two verses from the Bible on kings. And about the first verse, I want to say this. King James was not a saint, but he was also not a monster like Henry VIII. But as God used King Nebuchadnezzar and King Cyrus, so God used King James. God can use anyone. He used Moses the murderer. He used David the adulterer. God used Balaam's donkey. And you know what? God can use you if you'll let him. So the case for the King James Bible does not depend on King James himself. Now, of the second verse, I want to say this. King James had no hand in translating the Bible. There's no record of him saying anything about the King James Bible after it was published. But his sanctioning of the translation that bears his name lent authority to it. For 200 years, it was referred to as King James's Bible. But it was also referred to as early as 1620 as the authorized version. So I will use interchangeably throughout these lectures, authorized version, King James Version, and King James Bible. All right, here's Henry VIII, 1491 to 1547. Why look at Henry VIII? He's the most important figure in English church history. You can't understand the history of the King James Bible without knowing a little of English church history. So, England, like most of Europe at this time, was a Catholic country. In 1521, the Pope titled Henry Defender of the Faith. The Protestant Reformation, though, was taking place in Europe. You had Luther in Germany, and you had Zwingli in Switzerland. But in England, in 1534, you had what was called the Act of Supremacy. This is when Henry VIII broke with the Pope, not over doctrine, but because he wanted a divorce from the first of his six wives. Now, in the Act of Supremacy, Parliament recognized Henry as the supreme head of the Church of England. And that relationship continues to this day. Queen Elizabeth is the head of the Church of England, or the Anglican Church. In the United States, it's called the Episcopal Church. Now, Episcopal refers to government by bishops. Let me say two important things about that. In the New Testament, bishop, pastor, elder all refer to the same office. There's nothing higher. Below is the office of a deacon. However, what you have in Protestant churches, not just the Church of England, but all Protestant churches, have a multitude of unscriptural offices, boards, and committees in their church government going all the way up to a denominational headquarters. The second thing I want to say about this is the union of church and state. This is one of the great evils of church history and one of the great heresies of Christianity. So the king should never be head of the church. 
This is always bad, no matter what the religion. A Baptist church state would be just as unscriptural as a Catholic church state. So the Reformation firmly takes hold in England in spite of Henry VIII. Now, let's return to King James. He was crowned in 1603. And soon after that, he had, he had a conference at Hampton Court Palace. And you can go visit that even today. This conference relates to the King James Bible. It occurred in January of 1604 over a period of three days. King James met with his advisors and his bishops. Some of these bishops later became translators. Church and state. Now, also in attendance were some Puritans. The Puritans wanted to purify and reform the Church of England to make it less Catholic. They wanted a more complete Reformation, and they objected to certain ceremonies. Now, the subject of the Hampton Court Conference was church reform. Not much became of this conference. However, on the second day, the Puritan named John Reynolds proposed a new translation of the Bible. The king liked the idea, and work began a few months later. Now, how do we know what transpired at the Hampton Court Conference? There survived letters about the conference and anonymous accounts of the conference. These are discussed in my book, King James, His Bible, and its translators. There is one main account of the Hampton Court Conference that I want to bring to your attention. And this was written by William Barlow. And it's the sum and substance of the conference at Hampton Court. Here's the title page. It's a 114-page book. Barlow was the dean of Chester Cathedral, and he later became a bishop. He was chosen as one of the King James translators. So this is the official account. Now, the second thing we want to notice about the wording on the King James title page, we've looked at the phrase, His Majesty. The second thing we want to notice is the reference to the original tongues. Now, here we have the preface to the uh, King James Bible, and there are two statements about the languages the Bible was originally written in, Hebrew and Greek. Now, I'll say more about this preface in Lecture 3, but for now, I've reproduced the two statements there that they made. And let me just say, first of all, thank God we have a Bible in English translated from Hebrew and Greek, so we don't have to learn Hebrew and Greek to read, interpret, and understand the Bible. Now, the first English Catholic Bible that was translated before the King James Bible was a translation of a translation. It was translated not from the original Hebrew and Greek, but from the Latin Vulgate, the official Bible of the Catholic Church that was first translated from Hebrew and Greek into Latin around 400 A.D. And I will say more about the Latin Vulgate and the first Catholic English translation in Lecture 2. For now, let's look at Hebrew. Here's a Hebrew manuscript. There are hundreds of Hebrew manuscripts that have been discovered. The text was preserved by Jews. 
The traditional text was called the Masoretic text after the Masoretes who copied and edited the text beginning in the 7th century. The recovery of the knowledge of Hebrew began after the invention of printing in the 15th century due to Christian interaction with Jewish scholars and the work of converted Jews. The scholarship of medieval rabbis was communicated to the world through independent Latin translations of the Old Testament made during the 16th century. They formed the link between rabbinic scholarship and those engaged in translating the Bible into the vernacular. All right, here's a page from a Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible was first printed, remember that's just the Old Testament, they didn't recognize the New Testament, first printed in 1488 at Socino, Italy. The first few Hebrew Bibles were printed by Jews. But then Daniel Bomberg, a Christian printer at Venice, published rabbinic Bibles. These were Hebrew Bibles with the text, plus notes, plus comments of rabbis, plus the Targums, which are Aramaic paraphrases. And the first rabbinic Bible was published in 1516 to 1517, and it was edited by a converted Jew. And then the second rabbinic Bible was published in 1524 to 1525, and that was edited by Jacob ben Chaim, who later converted to Christianity, and when he did that, all the Jews disowned him. All right, let's look at Greek. Here's a Greek manuscript. It's been identified as P52. There are thousands of Greek manuscripts that have been discovered. Few are of the entire New Testament. Many of complete books or sections of the New Testament. But many more are just fragments. Now, P52 is one of the oldest ever found. It contains seven lines from John's Gospel on the front and back. The conjecture date is the second century. The readings of Greek manuscripts make up the Greek New Testament. There have been three major editions of the Greek New Testament. Now, the recovery of the knowledge of Greek began during negotiations between the Eastern and Western Catholic churches between the Council of Lyons in 1274 and the Council of Florence in 1439, and also after the invention of printing and after the migration of Greek scholars and manuscripts to the West after the collapse of the Byzantine Empire in the 15th century. So Erasmus, Stephanus, and Beza. Let's look first of all at Erasmus. He lived 1466 to 1536. He was a Dutch Renaissance humanist. He was a Catholic reformer, a social critic, a classical scholar, and one of the most prolific writers in history. The University of Toronto Press publishes his complete works, 89 large volumes. Now, Erasmus was an independent scholar. He was at home throughout all of Europe. He did study at the University of Paris. He began to learn Greek in 1501, 
and he started translating the works of ancient Greek authors. Then he received a Doctor of Divinity from the University of Turin in Italy in 1506. He lectured on Greek at Cambridge University in England from around 1511 to 1515. He harshly disputed with Martin Luther over predestination and free will. He was a harsh critic of the wars that plagued Europe and especially Christian participation in such wars. Now, the most important thing about Erasmus for us is that he was the editor of the first printed Greek New Testament. And here is a page from the 1516 Erasmus first edition Greek New Testament. It is in parallel columns with Erasmus' own Latin translation. Other editions followed in 1519, 1522, 1527, and 1535. The second edition of Erasmus was used by Martin Luther for the German New Testament. The third edition was used by William Tyndale for the English New Testament. The fourth edition added the Latin Vulgate in a third column. So Erasmus got the ball rolling, so to speak. By the end of the 16th century, there were about a hundred editions of the Greek New Testament. And most of the countries in Europe had the Bible in their own language. All right, then we have Robert Stephanus, 1503 to 1559. He was a French printer, scholar, editor, publisher, and bookseller. He was from a family of French printers. He resided in Paris. He was named the King's Printer in Hebrew and Latin in 1539 and the King's Printer in Greek in 1542. He printed Bibles and other scholarly material in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He left France and settled in Geneva, Switzerland in 1550 because of conflicts with theological censors over his biblical publications, church and state. Now, in Geneva, he publicly identified as a Protestant. Here's a page from the 1550 Stephanus Greek New Testament. This is the most famous edition. Other editions were done in 1546 and 1549. And then after this, there was a fourth edition in 1551. Now, this last edition in 1551 was unique because it also contained the Latin Vulgate and the Latin translation of Erasmus in parallel columns with the Greek. And it was the first Greek New Testament to divide the chapters into verses. The 1551 fourth edition of Stephanus. All right, next we have Theodore Beza, 1519 to 1605. He was a disciple, associate, and successor of John Calvin in Geneva. He was a French Reformed theologian and a classical and biblical scholar. Here is a page from Beza's 1598 
Greek New Testament. The fourth edition, it's the most famous edition. It was certainly used by the King James translators. The Greek text of the New Testament is in columns with the text of the Latin Vulgate and Beza's own Latin translation with annotations at the bottom of the page. Earlier major editions were done by Beza in 1565, 1582, and 1588. He also had minor editions in 1565, 1567, 1580, 1590, and 1604. And these editions had the Greek text with Beza's Latin translation in two columns. All right, here is a famous medal of Henry VIII. Now, during the 15th century, there was continuous interchange of scholars between England and the European continent, especially Italy. Trilingual colleges were established in Europe where Hebrew, Greek, and Latin could be studied. Instruction in Greek was established at Oxford in England by the late 1490s. Instruction in Hebrew began at Cambridge during the 1520s. In the preamble to a 1536 Act of Parliament, Henry VIII specified the three tongues as subjects suitable for a newly established public lecture named after the king. Regis professorships in Hebrew and Greek were also established by Henry VIII at Oxford and Cambridge beginning in 1540. Now I'll say more about Oxford and Cambridge universities in Lecture 3. In 1545, for the 10th anniversary of his becoming the head of the Church of England, Henry VIII struck a commemorative medal inscribed in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And this medal proclaimed him to be defender of the faith and under Christ, supreme head of the Church of England and Ireland. An Italian scholar who visited England in 1551 wrote, that the rich caused their sons and daughters to learn Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. The Cathedral Church Schools of Canterbury and York began to offer the three languages in the 1540s. Queen Elizabeth was reputed to know Hebrew, Greek, and Latin in addition to English and French. Now, the third thing we want to notice about the wording on the King James title page is the reference to the former translations. Here is an image of the rules drawn up for the King James translators. There's a list of 15 rules, and I'll say more about these rules in Lecture 3. But for now, I want you to notice two rules, Rule 1 and Rule 14. Rule 1, the ordinary Bible read in the church, commonly called the Bishop's Bible, to be followed and as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. And then if you notice Rule 14, it mentions other versions beside the Bishop's Bible. So the King James Bible was based primarily on the Bishop's Bible 
And then the earlier English Bibles of Tyndale, Coverdale, Matthew, the Great Bible, which was printed by Whitchurch. That's why it's called Whitchurch's Bible. And also the Geneva Bible. Now here's a statement from the King James Translator's preface about Bibles. There are actually four statements in the translator's preface about the earlier English Bibles. This is the first one that you'll find if you read through the preface. And notice a couple things here. They say, a good one better. Well, that's a reference to the Bishop's Bible, Rule 1. And then they say, out of many good ones. Well, that's a reference to the English Bibles before the Bishop's Bible. That would be Rule 14. Now, in another place in their preface, the translators say that the worst translation of ours is far better than their authentic vulgar. And that is a reference to the Catholic Latin Vulgate. So let's begin with William Tyndale. William Tyndale lived 1494 to 1536. He is the father of the English Bible. He was educated at Oxford. He knew seven or eight languages. He preached. He worked as a tutor. He disputed with ignorant clergymen. He did some non-biblical translating. He had a famous encounter with a learned man in which he said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the Scripture than thou dost. Tyndale said he was moved to translate the New Testament because of those who drive people from the knowledge of the Scripture. wonder who that was a reference to. Now, in London in 1523, Tyndale tried to get the Bishop of London, his name was Cuthbert Tunstall, remember that name, it's going to come up later. He tried to get that bishop to aid him in his translation efforts, but he was denied. So Tyndale spent a year in London studying, and then he left England and never returned. He went to Germany. So here's a map of Germany. Tyndale left England for Germany in 1524. He is thought to have gone first to Hamburg in northern Germany. He did go to Cologne, Germany in 1525. And when he was there, he began to print the first English New Testament. He had to flee suddenly in the middle of the printing to avoid arrest by the Cologne authorities. He went down the Rhine River below Mainz to the city of Worms. And he started all over again. His complete New Testament was published at Worms in 1526. All right, here is an image of what's called Tyndale's Cologne Fragment. There is one copy of Tyndale's Cologne Fragment that is known to exist. It was not discovered until 1834. It is now in the British Library. It has no title page. It contains the prologue, 14 pages, a table of contents, and then the text of Matthew that ends abruptly at chapter 22, verse 12.
That's as far as he got done on the printing. It has marginal notes and cross-references. All right, here is an image of the Tyndale 1526 New Testament title page. This is the New Testament that he actually finished and published in 1526. It is the first complete New Testament in English translated from the Greek. It was small in size. It was smuggled down the Rhine River into English ports. It was prohibited in England. There were public burnings. Bishop Tunstall bought up copies to burn them. Only three copies remain. One is incomplete. Another is missing the title page. It was bought by the British Library in 1994 for over one million pounds. However, a third complete copy was discovered in 1996. And that's why we can see this title page. It's from that third complete copy. It was discovered in Germany, 1996. All right, here is a page from Tyndale's 1526 New Testament. There's no prologue this time. There's no marginal notes. The New Testament ends with an epilogue of three pages and a list of printing errors, which is also three pages. All right, here's a map of Belgium. Tyndale resided in Antwerp in modern-day Belgium from 1528 to 1535. Belgium had succeeded from the Netherlands in 1830. Antwerp was a prosperous and cosmopolitan center of commerce, culture, and intellectual inquiry. While there, Tyndale wrote several books and worked on Bible translation. He translated the Pentateuch in 1530, the book of Jonah in 1531, and the books of Joshua through 2 Chronicles. However, those were never published. Tyndale then revised his New Testament in 1534 and slightly revised his New Testament again in 1535. Here is the title page of Tyndale's 1534 New Testament. It has his name on the title page, and it also says, Diligently Corrected. It was printed in Antwerp. It is superior to the 1526 first edition. This New Testament by Tyndale, 1534, is the basis of all future English New Testaments including the King James Bible. All right, here's a page from Tyndale's 1534 New Testament. His New Testament contains two prefaces, marginal notes and cross-references. It has prologues to most books of the New Testament. And it has an appendix with translation of 40 Old Testament passages. All right, here are the title pages of a couple Tyndale modern spelling editions that I want to bring to your attention. Exact but modern spelling editions of Tyndale's 1534 New Testament and portions of the Old Testament that he translated 
have been edited by Tyndale scholar David Daniel. He is author of the definitive biography of Tyndale, and he's the founder of the Tyndale Society. These were published by Yale University Press, the New Testament in 1989, and the Old Testament in 1992. It is interesting to read and note the phrases, sentences, and verses that read exactly like the King James Bible. All right, unfortunately, I need to tell you about the death of Tyndale. In 1535, he was betrayed by an Englishman named Henry Phillips. He was imprisoned in a castle in Belgium near Brussels for over a year. There is a letter of Tyndale that was discovered in the mid-1800s in which he requests warmer clothes, a lamp, a Hebrew Bible, a Hebrew grammar, and a Hebrew dictionary. He was condemned as a heretic, he was strangled, and he was burned at the stake in 1536. His last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Church and state, church and state. Now, we have a tremendous debt to William Tyndale. And he died for the most noble of causes. He didn't die in some senseless war somewhere halfway across the world. He died for the most noble of causes. Now, Tyndale influenced not just the English Bibles, but the English language. Here are some words introduced into the English language by Tyndale. And these are taken from his Bible and his other writings. Tyndale is actually second to Shakespeare as far as having an influence on the English language. Now, here are some biblical phrases first found in Tyndale. Many familiar phrases from the authorized version first appear in Tyndale. All right, let's move to Coverdale. Here's the title page of the Coverdale Bible, and the date would be 1535. The title page says, faithfully translated out of Dutch and Latin into English. Dutch was a reference there to German. There's also an alternate title page that just says, faithfully translated into English. There's a dedication to Henry VIII. It says in the dedication that it was translated out of five sundry interpreters. These have been identified as two German Bibles, two Latin Bibles, and the fifth referring to Tyndale. The title page shows Henry VIII distributing God's words and the gospel to the clergy and nobility. So who was Coverdale? Miles Coverdale. He lived 1488 to 1569. He was educated at Cambridge University. He was an English reformer. He is second to Tyndale in importance as it relates to the English Bible. His name will show up again in connection with three other Bibles. Now, he was not the scholar Tyndale was. 
He was not fluent in biblical languages. He lived in Europe from 1528 to 1535, and he was associated with Tyndale in Antwerp. Here's a page from the Coverdale 1st Edition 1535 Bible. It was printed in Europe and imported into England. I believe there are about 80 copies that are known to exist, all of them incomplete. In 1537, he issued a revised edition, and it was the first complete Bible printed in England. Now, the second printing of the 1537 edition had a license of the king. This was only one year after Tyndale was put to death. Coverdale relied on Tyndale's Pentateuch and the 1534 edition of Tyndale's New Testament. All right, after Coverdale, we have the Matthew Bible. And here is the 1537 Matthew Bible title page. It was printed in Europe and imported into England. It had a dedication to Henry VIII, and it received the license of the king. And you'll see that statement at the bottom of that title page. So, who was Matthew? Thomas Matthew was his name. Who was this? His real name is John Rogers, 1505 to 1555. Thomas Matthew was the pseudonym of John Rogers. Rogers was an English reformer, educated at Cambridge. He moved to Antwerp in 1534. He met with Tyndale and Coverdale. He returned to England in 1548 during the reign of Edward VI, the only son of Henry VIII. He was appointed lecturer in divinity at St. Paul's Cathedral. He became a popular preacher. He had 11 children. However, during the reign of Bloody Mary, he was arrested and imprisoned in 1554. He was condemned as a heretic, and he was burnt at the stake in 1555. He was the first one put to death under Bloody Mary. All right, here is a page from the Matthew Bible, 1537. The New Testament is based mostly on Tyndale, the 1534 Tyndale New Testament. The Old Testament was based on Tyndale's Pentateuch and Tyndale's unpublished translation of Joshua through 2 Chronicles. The rest of the Old Testament was based on Coverdale's Bible. On the last page of the Old Testament, the initials WT appear as an expression of John Rogers' indebtedness to Tyndale. Next we have the Great Bible. And here is the title page of the 1539 first edition Great Bible. It was called the Great Bible because of its large size. It was larger than the Bibles of Tyndale, Coverdale, and Matthew. However, it was smaller than the King James Bible. It was printed by Whitchurch, so it's also called the Whitchurch Bible, as we saw in the list of rules given to the translators. The title page contains an elaborate woodcut of Henry VIII 
giving copies of the Bible to Thomas Cromwell and Thomas Cranmer. And then another image of Cromwell and Cramner giving the Bible to the clergy and the nobility, church and state. All right, here's Thomas Cromwell, 1485 to 1540. He was Henry VIII's principal secretary and chief minister. He favored the English Reformation. He was condemned without trial and executed for treason and heresy in 1540. After Cromwell's fall from grace, his coat of arms on the title page of the Great Bible was removed, leaving just a small blank circle. All right, here's Thomas Cranmer, 1489 to 1556. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1533 to 1555. Now let me explain what that means. The Church of England was divided into two provinces with two archbishops. The northern province was at York and the larger southern province was at Canterbury. The Archbishop of Canterbury is the supreme archbishop and the leader of the Church of England. He has secular and spiritual duties and plays a role in coronations, church and state. Now, an archbishop is not scriptural. Christ is called the shepherd and bishop of our souls, 1 Peter 2.25. An archbishop would be above Christ. Christ is also called the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5.4. Now, Cramner did favor the English Reformation. During the reign of Bloody Mary, he was tried for treason and heresy and burned at the stake. The Great Bible was sometimes called Cramner's Bible because he wrote the preface that appeared in all editions but the first. All right, so here once again is the Great Bible title page, 1539. There were three more editions in 1540 and then three more editions in 1541. The fourth and sixth editions mention the role of two bishops in preparing the editions. One of them is Cuthbert Tunstall, who earlier had bought up copies of Tyndale's New Testament to burn them. The 4th and 6th edition title pages also say that they are the Bible in English of the largest and greatest volume, authorized and appointed by the commandment of our most redoubted prince and sovereign lord, King Henry VIII. References to the second royal injunctions of 1538. That's what that is. It's a reference to the second royal injunctions which admonished the clergy to set up in their churches one book of the whole Bible of the largest volume in English. The Great Bible is the first authorized Bible in the sense that it was done under the auspices of the English church. Here is a page from the Great Bible, 1st edition, 1539. Now, although the title page 
says that the great Bible was translated by the diligent study of diverse, excellent, learned men. It was primarily the work of Coverdale. But he revised not his own Bible, but the Matthew Bible. Also note that the order of books in the New Testament follows the traditional order first given by Erasmus in his Greek New Testament. That was followed by all future Bibles. The Tyndale Bible, Coverdale Bible, and Matthew Bibles follow Luther's order of New Testament books, which ends the New Testament with Hebrews, James, Jude, and then Revelation. All right, let's go to Geneva. Here's a map of Geneva. Geneva was an important city to the Protestant Reformation. It was the center of Protestant thought and scholarship. The Geneva Bible was translated there. John Calvin was a pastor there. His followers are called Reformed. Many exiles from England settled there during the reign of the Catholic Bloody Mary, which was 1553 to 1558, including Miles Coverdale and John Knox. Knox was actually briefly the pastor of the English church in Geneva. All right, here is the International Monument to the Reformation. If you went to Geneva today, you would see this International Monument to the Reformation. It's also called the Reformation Wall. It's on the grounds of the University of Geneva. It honors many of the main individuals, events, and documents of the Reformation. It was built to commemorate the 400th anniversary of Calvin's birth and the 350th anniversary of the founding of the University of Geneva, which was founded by Calvin. In the center of the wall, you have these four men, Theodore Beza, John Calvin, William Farrell, and John Knox. All right, in 1557 in Geneva, there's a New Testament that was translated by William Whittingham. And we want to look at this first before we look at the Geneva Bible. This is the ancestor of the Geneva Bible. Now, Whittingham, he lived 1524 to 1579. He was a Marian exile in Geneva. He was educated at Oxford and at French and German universities. He succeeded John Knox as pastor of the English church in Geneva. The title page says that the translation had been conferred diligently with the Greek and best approved translations. All English Bibles relied on previous English Bibles. Now, Whittingham's New Testament was based primarily on Tyndale's 1534 New Testament. Here is a page from Whittingham's New Testament, 1557. And there are four important things about this New Testament you should note. It's the first Bible printed in Roman type, so it's easier to read. It uses italics to represent words not found in the biblical languages, but required for clarity in English. The chapters are divided into verses, and each verse begins on a new line. So this is the ancestor of the Geneva Bible. 
Now let's look at the Geneva Bible. Here's the title page from the first edition, 1560. And the title page says that it was translated according to the Hebrew and Greek and conferred with the best translations in diverse languages. Again, all English Bibles relied on previous English Bibles. This Geneva Bible was the work of William Whittingham and at least five others, including Miles Coverdale, who stayed in Geneva after the death of Bloody Mary in 1558. Now, Whittingham's New Testament was revised. It was not just joined to a new translation of the Old Testament. And unlike the Coverdale, Matthew, and Great Bibles, the Old Testament from Ezra to Malachi was now translated for the first time directly from Hebrew. There were about 140 printings and editions of the Geneva Bible. The last was in 1644. It was actually not printed in England until 1575 for the New Testament and 1576 for the entire Bible. Now, in 1576, the New Testament was revised by Lawrence Thompson and began to be used in many printings of the Geneva Bible beginning in 1587. Here is a page from the Geneva Bible, 1560, first edition. It has extensive introductions, notes, and annotations. King James did not like the notes in the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible followed the Whittingham New Testament in the use of Roman type, italics, verse division, and each verse beginning on a new line. It was very popular because of the notes, because of the print quality, and because of the cheapness in price. This was the Bible of Shakespeare. Now, the notes were so popular that between 1642... And 1715, eight editions of the King James Bible were published with the Geneva Notes. All right, here's a list of the material on display that I have for you. And notice, first of all, I have uh, a copy of Tyndale's Cologne Fragment. Remember, this only goes to Matthew 22. But when you look at that, you'll be able to see the first work by Tyndale that was ever done. Then we have a facsimile of Tyndale's New Testament, 1526, a real nice facsimile that was done. And then I have the uh, Tyndale New Testament, 1534, the modern spelling edition done by uh, Yale University Press. I also have the Tyndale Old Testament Modern Spelling Edition by Yale University Press. And then I have a copy of the Coverdale Bible, 1535. I have a facsimile recently done of the Matthew Bible, 1537. Then I have a copy I've done of the Great Bible, 1539. I have a copy I've done of the Whittingham New Testament, 1557. And then I have a facsimile edition that was done recently of the 1560 first edition Geneva Bible. 
Now, I also have a replica page of the Great Bible, so you can see the actual size of how big it was. My copies that I've made are just regular 8.5 by 11 size. Now, this material is intended to be looked through, not just looked at. So take your time, check the title page, check the preliminary pages, check the artwork, check the text pages, look up some verses and compare those verses with the King James Bible and see how they differ or see if they're exactly the same. The material can be looked at in any order. You don't have to start with Tyndale. Now, finally, here are my three books on the King James Bible. And like I said, there are descriptions on the back of each book. So they're out there on the book table as well. So this concludes Lecture 1 on the prehistory of the King James Bible.